0: We now know for instance in the modern world that exposure to the gliadin protein in wheat, secalin and rye, hordein and barley, zein and corn that initiates the increased intestinal permeability that sets the stage for autoimmune diseases. We know that with good confidence from good science. It's one of the greatest mistakes ever made in human nutrition and health. But the bright side is that if you get this and ignore the nonsense that serves as US dietary guidelines and the marketing of agribusiness, you're given a key to magnificent health and slenderness.
1: Hi, everyone. It is Dr. Anna Kabeca. I am your Girlfriend Doctor, and it is my mission and passion to help women live better lives before, during, and after menopause. So welcome to the Girlfriend Doctor podcast, an intimate place for intimate conversation. And remember, I am here for you. Write into me. You can ask or tell me anything. No shame, no guilt, no apologies. We pull back the curtain on all things related to our health and the health of those that we love. You name it, we talk about it. And our goal is to shine light on your overall wellness. So today we are getting started with a dear colleague of mine, Dr. William Davis, famous for publishing, writing and publishing his book called Wheat Belly, which has sold over three million copies, over 3 million copies. What an amazing feat. Really, he has just done a tremendous amount for our field of medicine. Dr. Davis is a cardiologist and, as I said, the author of New York Times bestselling, number one bestseller, Wheat Belly. Lose the wheat, lose the weight, and find your path back to health. It is recently revised and an expanded edition of Wheat Belly is released now and available. He has been on national media appearances. He was with me in in, uh, Dr. Kellyanne's Late Night, and he has been on the Dr. Oz Show, CBS this morning, and Live with Kelly, featured on Bill O'Reilly, and just name it. He's been in many magazines, and his blog is Wheat Belly Blog, and I encourage you to take a look at that. So this is a phenomenon. Today, we're going to really get into some key areas of discussion regarding this, including why? is wheat so bad for us? I mean, aren't those ancient grains safe for us? Lo and behold, no, and nor have they ever been. And here he presents some great science behind this as, as well as why, what's happening. We talk about statin medications. Do you need statins to lower your cholesterol? He is a cardiologist. Wait till you hear what he has to say. And then what about SIBO, small intestinal bowel overgrowth, how that's affecting all of us? Can that be the reason for fibromyalgia? wait to hear what he has to say. It's a really fabulous conversation. So I'm excited to tune in with you to our conversation with Dr. William Davis, cardiologist and author of Wheat Belly. Here we go. Welcome to the Girlfriend Doctor podcast. Dr. Davis, great to have you here with me today.
0: Oh, glad to be here. <laughs> Different kind of venue.
1: It is a different kind of venue, and we were both on Kellyanne's, Dr. Kellyanne's Girls Night Out or Late Night Out early on in the time of the coronavirus pandemic, and I just fell in love with your messaging and your pearls of wisdom, and I knew that I had to have you on the couch, so to speak, for our Girlfriend Doctor podcast.
0: Its to be fun It's gonna be a lot of fun. It's going to be a fun conversation.
1: Well, tell us a little bit about your background and your story now, you know, as the I really like I was so impressed reading this. three million of your book, Wheat Belly," three million copies sold. I am in awe. I can only hope for for the same.
0: Well, it's not my charisma. it's not my good looks. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, I think it's the uh, the message that works. Uh, That is, agribusiness and farmers have managed to dramatically change this thing we all know as wheat and turned it from a four and a half foot or five foot tall traditional plant into a high yield semi-dwarf strain. So 99% of all wheat now comes from this very different kind of plant. stands 18 or 24 inches tall. It's very thick. The stalk is very thick. The seeds are very large. And it, it did accomplish what agribusiness set out to do, which is increase yield per acre. And it was a boon to feeding the hungry because it was so cheap and easy to produce. The problem is all the changes introduced into wheat. Wheat's always been a problem. Even primitive humans who ate the traditional strains of wheat developed explosive tooth decay, knee arthritis, nutrient deficiencies. But agribusiness and farmers amplified all those problems. To illustrate, for instance, there's something called phytates in grains. And farmers like phytates because phytates resist pests like insects and molds. So they selected strains with greater phytate content. Problem, phytates are very potent binders of all minerals in your gut. It binds all the iron and zinc and calcium and magnesium and you poop it out. And so while we're told you must eat healthy whole grains for the vitamins and fiber, actually grains are an enormous source of nutrient deficiencies. That's why when there's starvation, say, in Bangladesh or Ethiopia or a place like that, the World Health Organization flies in food that often includes wheat, flour, and corn. And they know, this is in their literature, it's in their website, they know that when they do that, they must address the impaired growth of children and impaired learning because of all the nutrient deficiencies that develop when kids rely on wheat and corn for nutrition so this is not a mystery it's not my speculation it's widely established that uh, modern wheat is extremely destructive to human health because of phytates because of gliadin gliadin drive opioid peptides that drive appetite wheat germagglutinin it's a very toxic to your gastrointestinal tract the amylopectin A that's responsible for raising blood sugar higher than table sugar, (laughs) on and on and on. In in the context, of course, of U.S. dietary guidelines that tell us you must eat this with every meal and every snack.
1: I'm in awe right now. So all ancient grains included, because you hear of kamut, and some of the ancient rye and different grains that are reported to have these tremendous health benefits. So compared to our, you know, genetically modified versions that we know today, when did couple questions. When did we start modifying our grains? And then just you know, help me understand that these ancient grains like kamut and, you know, rye and are the same are destructive.
0: The push to develop high yield strains of wheat and corn and soy too, by the way, began in the 1950s, 1960s, with, with noble purpose, by the way. It wasn't meant to screw with us. It was meant to increase yield per acre to help feed the world. And that was, so there was a good purpose here. But the science back then, of course, is very crude. It predated the methods of genetic engineering. So, you know, the wheat industry has, has attacked me and said, there's no such thing as genetically modified wheat. Well, they're right. There's no genetically engineered wheat. They used other methods, such as chemical mutagenesis. They exposed wheat seeds and embryos to very toxic compounds. One of them, for instance, is called sodium azide. It's a very toxic industrial compound. And there have been, shockingly, instances of accidental human ingestion. And the CDC says, if you witness an accidental human ingestion of sodium azide, don't. and that person has a cardiac arrest, which is what happens with this drug, don't give that person CPR because you'll die also and don 't if the If the victim vomits don 't throw the vomit in the sink because it may explode and that may that's actually happened in real life so this, so this very toxic compound is applied to wheat seeds, and embryos to induce numerous mutations. One of the mutations for instance, is resistance to an herbicide, a misamox, and it allow, just like genetically modified corn and soy, it allows a farmer to spray his his wheat field with a misamox it kills the weeds doesn 't kill the wheat but you get it in your rolls and bagels and bread. And so it's part of the shifting landscape, by the way, of the microbiome, our exposure to these, the sea of industrial compounds, including herbicides. So the push to generate high yielding wheat now means everything made of wheat in the world, virtually all, is made from high yield semi-dark So you're right, there's been a return to the heirloom strains or the traditional strains. Here's a question I ask. What happened to the first humans who consumed seeds of grasses? That's what wheat is. That's what grains are. So what happened to them? Well, interestingly, before we were agriculturalists and we were hunter-gatherers, and you get up in the morning, took your spear and speared a wild boar, or you gathered roots and tubers and put them in your stomach sack that you got from an animal you killed, or you foraged for berries or nuts, wild humans ate. There was almost no tooth decay. There was 1% to 3% of all teeth recovered, even elderly people. There was hardly any tooth decay or tooth loss or tooth abscess, any of those kinds of things. There was very little arthritis. And there was nutrient deficiencies only when there was starvation from climate change or drought or something like that. When we became agriculturalists and purposefully cultivated seeds of grasses, that is, grains, which, by the way, is not an easy thing to do when you think about it, You have to isolate those seeds, dry them, pulverize them on a stone as they did back then, and then reconstitute them as a porridge. That's how you first consume grains. What happened to those first humans in the Middle East, where they consumed wheat, or sub-Saharan Africa, where they consumed millet, or Central America, where they first consumed maize, uh, the forerunner of corn? And to some degree, Southeast Asia, the swamps of Southeast Asia that consumed rice. Well, what happened to those people between four and 12,000 years ago? There was an explosion of tooth decay. We went from one to 3% of all teeth being rotten or lost to 16 to 49% of all teeth recovered, showing rot, tooth loss, abscess formation. There was a doubling of knee arthritis. There was an increase in other bone diseases. You know, uh, livers don't fossilize, of course, so we can't tell much about the liver, say, or the heart there was also a big uptake in nutrient deficiencies, especially iron, because there are bony changes that occur called parotid hyperstosis in people who develop iron deficiency. And of course, back then, they still had celiac disease and autoimmune diseases, these are all diseases of grain consumption we now know for instance in the modern world that's exposure to the gliadin protein in wheat, secalin and rye, hordein and barley, zein and corn that initiates the increased intestinal permeability that sets the stage for autoimmune diseases we know that with good confidence from good science like that performed by Dr. Alessio Fasano while at University of Maryland so it's one of the greatest mistakes ever made in human nutrition and health but the bright side is that if you if you get this <clears throat> and ignore the nonsense that serves as U.S. dietary guidelines and the marketing of agribusiness, you're given a key to magnificent health and slenderness.
1: That's it. That easy. Just avoid it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, people say, oh, no, I'll never have pizza again, you mean? Or I won't have biscuits and gravy again, or I can't have cheesecake or a birthday cake. I can't have cookies or muffins. You can have all those things. We're just going to recreate all those foods with benign ingredients. So for instance, if I make some blueberry muffins, I won't make them with wheat flour. I'll make them with almond flour, ground golden flaxseed, and coconut flour. And I won't use sugar. I'll use some benign natural sweetener like stevia or monk fruit or allulose. So you can enjoy all those foods, including at holidays, with friends and family at gatherings and enjoy them. And they're delicious. Oddly, Dr. Anna, so this happens a lot. People say things like this, "I, my husband won't do this. So I got him a regular pizza and I made myself a, they call it wheat belly pizza, you know? Well, I found that if he can eat my pizza and he loves it, but if I try to take a bite of his pizza, I have diarrhea, bloating, anxiety, and skin rashes. In other words, <laughs> People eating grains can safely eat these non-grain foods, but exactly. people not eating grains can't eat those grain-consumed foods without getting quite ill.
1: Exactly. That's totally in line, too, with my Keto Green philosophy. I'm actually working on a recipe now because uh, trying to make blueberries, which are in season here, blueberry rhubarb pie, just because to cut down the amount of carbs and create this with this uh, nut crusty cobbler kind of combination. Anyway, you just made me think of that. I love it. I absolutely agree. Keto Green, we are dairy-free, grain-free in, in, my, in my plans. And, and that's right along line of this. Now, there's a, a few things, a few directions, of course, I want to go. So with that question of like, how much wheat can a person have safely, how would you answer that?
0: I would say zero. It's like, how many Marlboros can you smoke and still be healthy? I mean, it's, it's such a destructive effect. There are many long lasting effects when you're re-exposed, even if you endure the diarrhea and bloating in the first couple of days that you get with re-exposure. There's also uh, phenomena such as provocation of small LDL particles. So you and I know we live in this ridiculous world of people being treated for high cholesterol with statin drugs, which is an absurd notion. One of the real causes of heart disease, there are many real causes of heart disease like insulin resistance and inflammation. But one of the very dominating causes of heart disease is small LDL particles, not LDL cholesterol, but small LDL particles. Only two classes of foods provoke formation of small LDL cholesterol, grains and sugars. That's it. So by the way, so the American Heart Association diet causes uh, heart disease. American Diabetes Association diet causes heart disease. (laughs) US Dietary Guidelines for, for Americans causes heart disease. So it just takes exposure to a little bit of grains. And it's, by the way, it's the amylopectin A component. That's the kind of super carbohydrate of wheat and grains that account for the fact that two slices of whole wheat bread raise blood sugar higher than six teaspoons of table sugar. It's that due to that amylopectin A uniquely highly digestible carbohydrate, but it's the amylopectin A that provokes formation of small LDL. Well, small LDL particles are a little bit odd Once triggered to be formed, they stay in your bloodstream for about five to seven days. Unlike the large LDL particles that only endure for about 24 hours, and that's because the shape and conformation, surface conformation of small LDL particles is changed by that change in size, and the liver no longer recognizes it doesn't recognize the B on the surface. So the liver doesn't know these little small LDL particles are floating around, so it takes a long time to clear them. So just having, say, a sandwich once a week, or people would say to me, oh, I have a bad day on Friday, I have one slice of pizza, big deal. But I'd, I'd watch their lipoproteins and I'd see they'd have small LDL particles and thereby vascular risk, 52 weeks a year. So that one little indulgence once per week is enough to set in motion heart disease risk. Another thing that occurs is the protein in wheat, cichelin, rye, hordine, and barley, et cetera, is very digested. So humans don't have the enzymes for breaking down the proteins and grasses. And gliden is one of those proteins. So we break it down only partially, down to four or five amino acid long pieces or peptides. Those peptides are known to be able to penetrate into the brain and bind to the opioid receptors where they stimulate appetite. So I call this effect, I ate one cookie and gained 30 pounds.
1: Yes, I know that effect very
0: well. <laughs> so, uh, of course, I'm joking. There's, there's no cookie that just by eating it makes you gain 30 pounds that moment. I
1: can just smell it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that gliadin protein that's, that binds to opiate receptors triggers appetite. And it makes you hungry all the time. That's why people who consume a bowl of pasta, and they're, they're filled to bursting, but they're still hungry because they're being exposed to a very potent appetite stimulant. It's why we have dietitians saying ridiculous things like eat many small meals every two hours all throughout the day, which is very unnatural. And by the way, very destructive advice. So take away the glide and drive opioid peptides. There's an initial withdrawal process, by the way. People call it a bunch of things, keto flu. No, it's, a, it's an opioid withdrawal syndrome from the glide and drive opioid peptides. And it's, it's fatigue, nausea, headache, depression, last typically 5 days or so and then you're out of it. But when you're out of it, you also find yourself wonderfully freed from appetite. You're no longer hungry anymore.
1: How did you Dr. Davis as a board certified cardiologist begin your focus on on this area of medicine on wheat, on wheat restriction? And I will tell you too with the high cholesterol thing I've in my keto green communities When i monitored my clients in my program, my online program, Magic Menopause, and watched their cholesterol, with complete unanimity, everyone has gone from, that had a pattern B, small particle, LDL, they shifted to pattern A.
0: Oh, it's excellent. Excellent.
1: Now, a couple questions with that is like, what level, if they are pattern A, what level of cholesterol would you then consider treating or intervening with, if not with a statin, with what?
0: As time has gone on, so I, years ago, I used to prescribe statin drugs ad lib. I used to speak for the statin drug industry. I use statins and niacin and fibrates, all the garbage that <laughs> they advocate for treating cholesterol. Well, what I found was, as the tools for correcting lipoprotein abnormalities, metabolic distortions like high blood sugar and insulin resistance, endothelial dysfunction that accounts for abnormal arterial behavior and constriction. The nutritional methods made the drugs look like nonsense. The drugs hardly achieve anything. And we all know that, you know, when when the doctor, the uh, GP says something like, oh, take this Lipitor, it reduces heart attack risk by 36% or 50% course, we know that's nonsense. It does not. Maybe 1% best case scenario, often 0%. That's the magic of marketing and twisting uh, statistics to exaggerate the benefits of these things. So what I found was so the reason I got started in this path many years ago, 20-some years ago, was we set up the first CT heart scanner in, in Wisconsin. It was very early. It wasn't even a CT heart. It was an EBT heart scanner. That's how long ago this was. And we're scanning people. It's called Milwaukee Heart Scan. We were scanning people left and right and uncovering tons of hidden heart disease. You get a score on these things, of course, calcium score, zero and up. And people coming in, getting scores of 300, 500, 1,000, and they're freaking out. What do we do? Back then, I told them take Lipitor, aspirin, a low-fat diet, exercise, everything in moderation. Well, we know that if you did nothing, the score goes up twenty-five percent per year, taking you closer and closer to heart attack or death. If you take optimal medical therapy, that's what my colleagues call, call it: aspirin, low-fat diet, statin drug, etc. How fast does a heart scan score go up? Twenty-five percent per year. It does not a damn thing. Wow. Well, people are freaking out on me. Of course, my colleagues who are notorious for doing unnecessary procedures, who put these poor people through heart catheterization, unnecessary stent implantation, unnecessary bypass surgery, because it pays so well. And so I wanted a way to put a stop to this. In other words, if you have a score of 300 and then 385 and onward up, that person's gonna be in trouble in short order. Well, that meant I stumbled about for some years, but it led to lessons like, if you eradicate as you have, the small LDL particle by eliminating all grains and sugars, magnificent success if you add vitamin D. When I added vitamin D many years ago, it was the first time I saw heart's karner calcium scores drop, and I mean really drop, like 24%, 36%, 48%, 64%. You're not
1: just talking alpha-tocopherol, right? You're talking mixed tocotrienols with vitamin D. E.
0: Vitamin D, calcium. Cholecalcif- oh,
1: vitamin D. I thought you said E. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, I'm, I'm at a northern climate, so maybe the effect is a little stronger here, but as you know, even in Georgia, even in Miami, even in Honolulu, there's plenty of vitamin D deficiency. Yes. But it was the first time I saw coronary artery calcium scores drop, among other beneficial effects. And it became clear that the results we are attaining did not need a statin drug, did not need niacin, did not need any of those other ridiculous drugs. And we we're doing it exclusively with nutrition and some additional things like cultivating a healthy microbiome.
1: So true. My cousin is a cardiologist in Texas, uh, the DeBakey family. So one of the original bypass surgeons. Right. And so I had this is his his nephew. And so I had a discussion with him there in Texas. About statin drugs. This is in in maybe 2010, 2011, and I'd just been learning about through my own journey, just been learning about statins interfering with CoQ10 and causing congestive heart failure and these other issues. And I started this discussion. He says, "This is nonsense. This is ridiculous. Statin drugs should be in the water." and 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 this was the the reaction that i would gotten but i'm like well look at the science this is said in the pdr you know i mean the our physicians drug reference says it can cause coq10 insufficiency and because statins are still so widely prescribed today what do you say how do you handle this coq10 insufficiency or this in your practice i mean again what you say in wheat belly, the wheat belly program, right? That shifting of your body's ability to sustain healthy nutrients and get what you need from whole foods, essentially, and avoiding sugar, that that is going to create the best cardiovascular profile. But now, what about those statin?
0: The way I get around it is just don't use them. That is, so if you restore vitamin D, HDL goes up, HDL becomes bigger and more protective. If you add fish oil, omega-3 fatty acids, you reduce fasting triglycerides, you reduce after-meal triglycerides, you reduce VLDL particles, you make uh, HDL particles larger and more protective, you push small LDL towards large LDL. If you add iodine and make uh, achieve optimal thyroid function, HDL goes up, triglycerides come down, small LDL comes down. LDL particles come down. In other words, you can mimic everything and much more. Anything the statins do, we can do far better with nutrition. And so if, if, if we looked at a lipoprotein panel and other metabolic markers like insulin, blood glucose, et cetera, the effect of nutrition when done right is far superior than what you can achieve with a silly statin drug. But they get all the dough. They get all the money to, to persuade, that, unfortunately, some of my colleagues that this should be in the water and say idiotic things like that, which is completely absurd. And the science is quite clear. Statin drugs hardly achieve anything.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And then also vitamin D for creating insulin sensitivity, another Mm -hmm. big factor, right? Mm -hmm. That we know that it's worked as as well, if not better than many of the blood glucose medications, just optimizing that and combining even with metformin. I love everything you're saying. it's so along lines and definitely what I've seen clinically. And also in the statin research, one of the things that I present in some of my lectures, training physicians in hormones is about, uh, hypogonadism, testosterone, right? Statin use causes hypogonadism. It causes low testosterone. The reaction is, well, your testosterone's low. Let's give you more testosterone versus, well, let's let's rebuild your body's own natural production and get you off the statin drug that is also affecting your low testosterone. That's been a fascinating thing. And we want to. What about the ApoE genotypes?
0: Boy, that's a big conversation. <laughs> so I'm not too worried about ApoE2 provided you do all the basic things. So your listeners may remember that ApoE2 means you delay the clearance of post print after-meal particles. So the downside of ApoE2, it tends to reduce your heart disease risk, but there, is a, there are some issues in there, such as the persistence of small LDL particles. Small LDL particles last the longest in ApoE2 people. With ApoE4, what we do there is just address the inflammasome. You know, Dr. Dale Bredesen, who wrote the end of Alzheimer's. I disagree with a lot of the things he says. He's doing great work, and I applaud him for the courage he has in uh, telling us that the drugs for dementia do nothing, yet there's so much you can do. But he published a very important paper, he and his team, that showed that ApoE4 is the activator of the inflammasome. It activates numerous genes, hundreds of genes, that all drive inflammation. And so that's, the I think, the core of the issue. I don't think it's LDL cholesterol. We we know, for instance, if you give an ApoE4 with high cholesterol, a statin drug, it does not reduce dementia risk at all, zero, even though it's often used for that purpose. It's inflammatory. So what we do with ApoE4 is focus on all measures inflammatory. C-reactive protein, of course, IL-6, IL-1 beta. Uh, You don't have to check all these things, but at least uh, follow a program designed to reduce uh, inflammation. So wheat and grains, hugely inflammatory. Sugars, hugely inflammatory. Lack of vitamin D, lack of omega-3 fatty acids, hypothyroidism, and dysbiosis, disrupted bowel floor. As you know, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, where bacteria have proliferated, E. coli, Shigella, Campylobacter, ciprobacter et cetera. They've proliferated. They've outmuscled the beneficial bacteria like lactobacillus, bifidobacter, and others. And they ascend up to 24 feet of small intestine. So, you have essentially a 30 foot collection of bacteria, which is huge. And of course, bacteria, the trillions of bacteria, don't live 70 years like we do or whatever. They live hours. So, there's a huge turnover of bacteria living and dying in your gastrointestinal tract. Well, those byproducts of death, a lot of it enters the bloodstream. There's as much as a 400% increase in the bacterial breakdown products in your bloodstream. That process discovered in France called metabolic endotoxemia. And that's the way SIBO is a huge activator of body-wide inflammation. It's how bacteria in the gut can be expressed as skin rash, as rosacea or psoriasis, or as neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinsonism, and Lou Gehrig's disease, or as restless legs as in restless leg syndrome, or as numerous other health conditions. It's, it's this very critical observation that SIBO leads to metabolic endotoxemia, and that's how we get all these coronary disease. It's looking like a disease of metabolic endotoxemia and SIBO, to, to at least to some degree. But now that we've been correcting SIBO, looking for it, Oh, by the way, this is the device we use to detect SIBO. I have no association with the company. It's a company called Food Marble. Invented- Food Marble. Mm-hmm. The device is called Air A-I-R-E. A-I-R-E. Um, for, very nice. You blow into it, and then it registers hydrogen gas on your smartphone. It tells you how much hydrogen gas you have.
1: Very cool. I had not heard of this device.
0: So bacteria produce hydrogen gas. Humans don't produce much hydrogen gas. So we do a little protocol where we challenge ourselves with a prebiotic fiber that nourishes bacteria, and then we check hydrogen gas levels over three hours. You can do a formal eight hydrogen gas test also in the lab. But it's very it's kind of a pain in the neck to do. It takes about four hours. This you do in, at your kitchen table, or or your living room. Costs a few dollars, but it's far cheaper in the long run than the formal testing. The only one of the problems is the, the the guy who invented it, Dr. Angus Short in Dublin, thought it was only a device to navigate a low fodmaps diet. So I called him. I said, "Hey Angus, this is a device for SIBO." But it will help people navigate all the food intolerances, whether it's FODMAPs or fructose, or uh, nightshades, or lectins, or histamine provoking foods. These are all SIBO questions, and they thought it was just for FODMAPs. So when you if you buy the device, it'll come with instructions on how to navigate FODMAPs. <laughs> so I think they're going to change that. They're, they're a little worried about tangling with the FDA and FTC when you make claims. So again, sure. be careful. But it, Dr. Anna, I. Liken this to glucose finger sticks. You may remember up to the 1980s, before we had glucose finger sticks and had only urine dips. What did you do when your two-year-old became unconscious? Is his blood sugar 900 or 30? Will he die in a hypoglycemic coma in the next five minutes? Or is he going to have diabetic q dose? You can't tell because all you have is, are silly urine dipsticks, And so people were having kidney failure, blindness, uh, amputations in their 20s ever since we had fingerstick glucoses there's precision now managing insulin and diabetes drugs and all those complications have been stalled have been delayed and management of diabetes despite the blundering of uh, the American Diabetes Association despite that fingerstick blood glucose was a game changer for diabetes this is the game change for intestinal health it tells you and by the way Angus Short tells me that later this year they're going to re-release the device and it will, it will test for hydrogen gas for ninety percent of SIBO is hydrogen gas producing, but also methane from methanogenic SIBO. For the ten percent of people who have methanogen, methanogenic SIBO, and hydrogen sulfide gas also. So that's later this year. So they so they think.
1: Wow, that is really cool. So let me understand here too with that hydrogen gas um, production. That is also when you have food intolerance to nightshades and these other foods as well. I mean, the beyond our wheat. Beyond our grains, there are certain specific foods that are feeding SIBO that have to be eliminated as well. Yes, and exactly. This- so
0: what this is really, it's like a sonar unit for mapping out where bacteria are. So let's say I, I take inulin powder, which is a prebiotic fiber in my coffee, a couple teaspoons of inulin powder in my coffee. I drink it, and then 30 minutes later, I've got diarrhea, anxiety, bloating, a panic attack, If I get that within 30 minutes, that means bacteria way up high because it can't get, bacteria is supposed to be in the colon. But if it occurs within 30 minutes, there's no way for that inulin to have gotten to the colon in 30 minutes. So it's any positive, so this thing measures hydrogen gas zero to 10 with each unit, one, two, three, equal to uh, five parts per million H2 gas on formal testing. So if I I start at the beginning, let's say 1.2, and then I have two teaspoons of inulin in my coffee, 30 minutes, I blow a 10, I have SIBO I can stop. Or if I have that, that reaction, by the way, to prebiotic fibers, inulin, legumes, nightshades, all those reactions, if you those all indicate that bacteria are way up high. We now know, for instance, irritable bowel syndrome is probably synonymous with SIBO. In fact, the gastroenterologists, the ones who know something about this, are saying, maybe we don't call it IBS anymore. Maybe we just call it what it is, SIBO. And fibromyalgia, you know, Mark Pimentel's data, Cedar sinia LA, he would tell us that 100% of people with fibromyalgia have SIBO. And by the way, once you get this and you manage the SIBO, you have spectacular results. We've, a a woman just recently, 20 years of incapacitating fibromyalgia and she couldn't garden, she couldn't walk. She was confined to bed a couple of days a, a week on Lyrica, on prednisone, on non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, not having any effect. She tests flagrantly positive H2, get, takes one of our herbal antibiotic regimens. There's only two regimens that have proven efficacy and some other efforts to augment efficacy and prevent recurrences because there's, there's a big problem with recurrence in SIBO. Within five days, she was freed for the first time in 20 years from all the aches and pains of fibromyalgia. She had off all three drugs. So wonderful, spectacular successes like that once you address SIBO. And all those people who think they're intolerant to nightshades, legumes, all those things, almost always they can go back to eating those
1: foods. Once they clear the SIBO.
0: Once they clear the
1: SIBO. Those foods just aggravate it. And once they clear the SIBO, once they heal that, repopulate healthy gut bacteria. Let's talk about this herbal antibiotic mojo magic you've got now. Let's (laughs) let's, let, yeah, share share that with us, please.
0: Well, there's a small, I was very skeptical about herbal antibiotics because you just can't throw a bunch of, oh, sorry, throw a bunch of herbs together and say, here you go, take this. You can't do that. In other words, you you can't say, okay, take berberine because it's effective against E. coli. Take oil of oregano because it's effective against enterococcus. You can't just put them. So I was very skeptical. But the Hopkins people published a study that compared the conventional antibiotic rifaximin versus two herbal antibiotic regimens, the candibactin regimen and the FC subtle dysbiocyte regimen. And lo and behold, the herbal antibiotic regimens were slightly better than the candibactin. The candibactin was only about 60% effective. And they treated the candibactin failures with one of the other herbal regimens, and they worked in both those. And (laughs) the the rifaximin caused some C. diff, clostridium difficile enterocolitis. The herbal antibiotics so far, cross my fingers, have never caused C. diff. So I started using the uh, one or two of those herbal antibiotic regimens, and lo and behold, we're seeing these spectacular results. Though we're, I'm tending towards pushing people towards the candibactin regimen because candibactin has two built in antifungal agents, also. It's got oil, oregano, and berberine. And it's becoming clear there's recent evidence to tell us that about 60% of people with SIBO also has CFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth.
1: I agree hundred. I agree. That is something I've seen over and over again. that leads to other debilitating conditions, lichen sclerosis, and the list goes on.
0: It also, of course, generates some of the most dramatic emotional (laughs) effects when you do this. So people have to know that when you eradicate bacteria and fungi, there's also a lot of panic, anxiety, depression. It is one of the most challenging things I've ever gotten involved with.
1: Cravings. Cravings. mm -hmm. Yeah. And mood swings for sure. And I think that's incredible to heal from that because the gut, healing the microbiome, healing the gut, then you'll repopulate after these herbal antibiotics, you repopulate with probiotic strains. Any particular strains that you love?
0: Well, you're bringing up one of my favorite topics to talk about, and that is uh, the lactobacillus rotari A fascinating story. I, I know you've heard this from me before, but for your listeners. So lactobacillus roteri is a strain that everybody should have gotten from their moms when they breastfed and passed through the vaginal canal, the birth canal. So everybody should have this thing, but we've lost it. 96% of all Americans have lost their lactobacillus roteri for a variety of reasons. Maybe the mom didn't even have it in the first place, or they got exposed to antibiotics somewhere along the line, or they got exposed to glyphosate. Glyphosate's a very potent antibiotic. It's an herbicide, but it's also a very potent antibiotic or other herbicides, other pesticides. So the long list of things we're all exposed to that are damaging our microbiome, one of the casualties is lactobacillus roteri. Well, there's a whole bunch of important effects from lactobacillus roteri. One of the things it does is via a retrograde vagal mechanism, vagus nerve, it causes the hypothalamus and pituitary to release oxytocin.
1: Mm, My favorite hormone, you are music to my ears, Dr. Davis
0: you know that oxytocin is the hormone of love, of empathy, of a desire for human connection. So think about this. We, 96% of us have completely lost lactobacillus rotari and thereby the boost in oxytocin. And we live in a time with record setting social isolation, suicide, divorce, even put aside the pandemic, just even without that. And so when we restore it, you see a wonderful restoration of empathy for other people, deepening of affection for the people close to you, and understanding the side of other people. People say, I like my husband better. I like my uh, children better. I like my neighbors better. So there's that part. The other thing about this is when you boost oxytocin, as we do with this Rotary, you also exert some very interesting effects. Many people lose wrinkles with starting within 4 weeks because of the explosion in dermal collagen as you, as you know when we age we lose dermal collagen there's an explosion in dermal collagen there's an acceleration of healing there's a restoration of youthful muscle and strength because we lose about 35 40% of our muscle and strength over the years there's a preservation of bone density that's all been by the way corroborated in humans there are other effects not yet corroborated in humans but i think are true we're trying to perform some of the clinical studies to corroborate this, but it's going to take a while. There, In mice, there's a restoration of thymic involution, the shrinkage of the thymus gland that's responsible for the loss of immunity in the elderly. And that's why they die of the flu or pneumococcal pneumonia or sepsis because they've lost their thymus gland function, thereby T-cell immunity against viruses and bacteria. Well, this restores the thymus back to where it was when you were young. There's also... A tripling of growth hormone and a quadrupling of low testosterone. This was in elderly mice. We have to corroborate that in humans. Our little clinical trial has been stalled because of the pandemic. We can't do elective types of clinical trials for a while, but we're going to try to corroborate that. But what you see in real life is a magnificent restoration of youthful characteristics. It's the closest thing I've ever seen to actually, you know, we've heard this with growth hormone and, you know, uh, progesterone. Uh, and I, those are wonderful. But I've never seen the magnitude of change as with this crazy thing. The problem is, when you buy this organism, it's, there's two of them. There's a company called BioGaia in Sweden. They patented it. And they sell it to you as a product called Gastrus, G-A-S-T-R-U-S. And these tablets are made for infants because the roteri re- uh, reduces infantile regurgitation of breast milk or formula. And it also reduces colic, cuts colic in half. So these tablets are made for babies. Well, hundred million counts of each bacteria, which sounds like a lot, but I should know, that's a trivial count. So I took the tablets, crushed them, made yogurt with them, but I didn't use, make yogurt like they do in commercial production where they ferment for a very short time. I used 36 hours because that's where most of the bacterial counts increase at the end of fermentation. So I fermented for 36 hours in the presence of prebiotic fibers that nourish bacteria. End result, a rich, thick, delicious yogurt, a little tangy because of the lactic acid, lactose being converted to lactic acid, and you obtain all these incredible effects. There's also an anorexogenic effect that is, it uh, turns off your appetite. Not everybody gets this. I get this to an extreme. I'm, I'm a chronic insomniac. I can't sleep. I just never, never sleep for years and years and years.
1: For how many I- hours? What do you mean never sleep? How many hours a night?
0: I would, before the yogurt, I'd go to bed at two, wake up at 3.30, wake up at five, try to go back to sleep, get up, and I, it was always a struggle to sleep. On the yogurt, with nothing else, no melatonin, nothing, just the yogurt, I sleep like a baby, nine hours plus a night, straight through, with vivid dreams, longer REM sleep, by the way, so profound sleep effects. So we make this yogurt. We get about 90 billion bacteria, CFUs, per half cup serving. And By the way, I, I know there's problems with dairy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, I cannot do any dairy. Bill, you've got to give me another option. Can I use coconut milk yogurt?
0: You can. It's more fussy. You have to add a few additional steps. By the way, all my recipes are in my Wheat Belly blog, how to do it with dairy. We use, by the way, organic half and half, high fat, 18% fat, or coconut milk. Either of those, by the way, whether it's dairy or coconut milk, you can't have any kind of additives, can't have xanthan gum, guar gum, gel gum, carrageenan, can't have any. It will make it kind of a a soupy mess. Okay. Uh, But the coconut milk, you have to do a few extra things. You have to add gelatin or pectin to it, heat activate it, and also use a a blender to emulsify the fats, but all in that recipe. But when you ferment this way, 36 hours in the presence of prebiotic fibers, Unlike commercial yogurt, fermented four hours. Let me just talk about that for a second. So it's like that old riddle to kids. How much money will you have if I give you a penny on day one and double it every day for 30 days? And kids say, oh, $10,000, right? It's $5.5 million. But think about it. So day one, one cent, second day, two cents, four cents, eight cents, going nowhere. But day 28, 29, that's where you get into millions. Same thing with bacterial doubling. First few hours, you got nothing. It's the late hours where you get these huge increases. and That's why we ferment for 36 hours. But by doing so, you not only increase bacterial counts dramatically, you also exhaust the lactose that is maximally converted to lactic acid. That's why it's still tart. It denatures. The drop, There's a drop in pH from lactic acid. The pH of this yogurt is about 3.5. And that pH denatures or breaks down the casein beta A1. It doesn't eradicate it, but it breaks it down to small peptides, making it less immunogenic. And you can pour off the whey or strain it like in Greek yogurt to minimize the insulin-provoking effect of the whey. So we don't eradicate the problems with dairy, but we minimize them. Or people who are intolerant to casein beta-A1 can use A2 milk or sheep or goat. And those are, of course, A2 sources. And so so the lactose is gone. You can work around the casein. So by, this, by these means, because I will tell you, the dairy form, I, I know, it has issues, but is so much more forgiving when you make the yogurt than the coconut milk. I've still not perfected the coconut milk yogurt uh, recipe. It's okay.
1: I'm gonna have to play with it. You know, it reminds me of the Middle Eastern lebni, the dish lebni. It's my mom used to make it. She would make her own yogurt in the big pot, then you know, heat it, cover it overnight, check on it, and then strain it in a in a cheesecloth in a strainer and cover it, put it in the fridge, let all the water strain and you get this thick spread. It's called lebni and you'd eat it with tomatoes and all this good stuff. But you, you know, it's like that form fermentation has occurred. It's got a rich bacterial count. It sounds inter- similar, but you're adding in the L strain and you're, you know, that thickening that little bit of the thickening. Excellent. Yeah, no, I love it. Can we eat it with our tomatoes and cucumbers?
0: Oh, wonderful. I'll mention one more thing about the Rotori because it's so interesting. So one of the unique aspects of Lactobacillus Rotori, you know, most probiotic species, of course, prefer the colon and it's unhealthy species that manage to ascend. But Lactobacillus Rotori is unique in that it prefers to colonize the upper GI tract, the stomach, duodenum, jejunum, and ileum, where it takes up residence and produces what are called bacteriosins, which are natural antibiotics effective against the organisms of SIBO. So I think, tough thing to prove. I think the loss of lactobacillus rhamnosus in ninety six percent of Americans is probably at least one of the reasons why there's been an explosion in SIBO. But we also put that to work in after we eradicate SIBO, we use lactobacillus rotorite yogurt to prevent recurrences because recurrences are a problem.
1: That sounds really good. Now, um, as we wrap, I'm going to ask you a couple surprise questions. Okay. okay. <laughs> So uh, tell us a day in your life. What does a day in your like life look like, Dr. Davis?
0: I work from home nowadays. And of course, it's modified because of, because of the pandemic. But I, I, I work a lot. I, I work on a book manuscript. I take care of social media responsibly, write blog posts, talk to colleagues, talk to people who I need to talk to for purposes of this book little exercise thrown in. I, I live in an old house, 90 years old with a big yard. So I go out and take care of the gardens. That that alone takes about an hour or two every day just to keep this old place going.
1: How about meals and exercise? What's your um, meal regimen like and your exercise regimen, activity regimen?
0: So with the lack of glide and drive opioid peptides, high fat intake, and the anorexogenic effect of rhodori, I typically eat twice a day, late morning and maybe early evening, like five or so. As you know, you float through your day and you don't really think much about food because it doesn't have the same kind of tentative. Foods, of course, still taste wonderful. And I just eat the kind of stuff you'd find in your, in your diets also, that is eggs, olive oil, Avocados, meats, of course, fish, poultry, chicken, and lots of vegetables, of course. But I also make it a point to include prebiotic fibers whenever possible. The evidence looks pretty good that you get a, a kind of a plateau effect at 20 grams per day of prebiotic fibers. So I worked to try to, and we also worked to encourage variety in forms of prebiotic fibers. So that we don't encourage overgrowth of a specific species because different bacteria, of course, pre- prefer different prebiotic fibers. So I'm making a point to do that. I spend a lot of time fermenting things also. So I've got some kombucha going. I've got some veggies going. I don't want to convey the idea that I get it's a full-time job. It's not. It takes very little effort.
1: I love it. So what about your supplement regimen? Last question.
0: I do what we do in my programs. That is vitamin D, of course, sufficient to raise 25 hydroxy vitamin D to 60 to 70 nanograms per milliliter. Omega three fatty acids to so supply 3,600 milligrams EPA DHA per day. That's the dose that provides maximum protection, cardiovascular protection, postprandial like a protein suppression, and protection from um, cognitive decline. Iodine because there's so much iodine deficiency now. Magnesium because we drink filtered water. I have a recipe for magnesium water. It's a reaction between the magnesium hydroxide of unflavored milk and magnesia and the carbonic acid of seltzer or, or other carbonated water. And you react them and you get water. If you do, if you write out the chemistry, you'll see you get water plus magnesium bicarbonate. Magnesium bicarbonate is by far the most absorbable form of magnesium. It uses a lot of people with migraines, osteoporosis, heart rhythm disorders, or hypertension. It's by far the most absorbed and most rapidly raises tissue and serum levels of magnesium far faster than some of the oral supplements, the, t- the tablet forms.
1: Is that recipe on your website too at Wheat Belly Blog? Yeah,
0: always, yep, it's on there too. Ma- I call it magnesium water.
1: Magnesium water, I love that. That's good. That's basic.
0: It, very basic. It doesn't mean there aren't benefits to other things. Like we'll use things like curcumin in uh, antifungal efforts, we use other things, but for the basic efforts, we also make efforts to cultivate a healthy microbiome. So starting efforts would be a high potency multi-species probiotic, accepting that nobody knows what a probiotic should look like, though that's that's starting to get clearer and clearer. I think what we should, should be doing with probiotics is rebuilding so-called keystone species. These are the species that support the growth of other healthy species. I think lactobacillus roterite, by the way, is one of those. And there's several others, like Acromansia and bifidobacterium infantis, and several others but we provide fibers, but that comes from food, and of course fermented foods. So that's pretty much all I do. You
1: are so keto green without even knowing it, Dr. Davis, (laughs) and I'm gonna get you hooked on my Mighty Maca supplement before you know it as well. <laughs> Fair enough. I want to thank you so much for being here today and, and share with our audience how they can continue to learn from you. I love your Wheat Belly blog. So tell every you know, I'm telling everyone right now, check out Wheatbellyblog.com. He has a free membership and a paid membership. So you can get a certain number of articles free each month, right? And check out these articles, take a look, join the membership. And um, how else can we get a hold of you?
0: So, Wheat Belly blog. There's a. I recently re-released the Wheat Belly book as a revised and expanded edition because people want to get this kind of concise one place. I do have an old book, but still very popular, called Wheat Belly 10-Day Grain Detox that comes with a private Facebook page you can sign up for. And that's the kind of do this on day one, do this on day two. Some people just like that. They don't want to hear about the science or the rationale. They just say, tell me what to do. <laughs> so that's Wheat Belly 10-Day Grain Detox.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Davis. Thanks for your time. And thanks for all this important work you're doing in the world. And you're certainly walking your talk. And I'm glad you're out there and representing the field of of cardiology, spearheading, really a movement. And thanks for this information. You taught me so much today in this wheat history, this ancient wheat history. So I am glad. I know my audience is going to love this information. I look forward to catching up with you again
0: and you keep on doing the great work you're doing.
1: Thank you, thank you. You guys, wasn't that a fabulous discussion? It was great to talk with Dr. William Davis, Dr. Bill Davis, about this topic. I mean, we have learned so, so much and he is saying what you know to really resonate truth within you and, right? Check it out. Test these things. The El Ruderi yogurt that's available, that recipe is available on his website at Wheat Belly Blog. I'm working on a coconut milk version because I can't do cow's milk, sheep's milk, goat's milk, none of that. I am very, very sensitive to dairy. So I'm gonna try a goat's milk version and make that. So stay tuned, hope to have that out to you soon. But in the meantime, really look at some of this information. Read Wheat Belly, because it is cutting-edge information. He's a highly researched and esteemed scientist and physician and has taken care of patients and seen this transformation. I loved what he said about statins. I loved what he said about healing the gut and the microbiome and also just really that hardcore stance on wheat and we really need to think about this we really need to check it out for ourselves and then recognize when we eat something how do we feel especially after we've been away from it our body has detoxed from it for quite a long time so I want to thank you for being with me on the Girlfriend Doctor podcast. Be sure to rate and share this episode. You have so many people in your life that needs to hear this and we need to keep spreading the message. I hope you will connect with me live sometimes in my Keto Green community, in my live events that I have going on there and in my Keto Green 16 challenge group. It has been amazing to start. And finish our Keto Green 16 day plan together. What a great community. Thank you. Remember, I am here for you and so happy to be your girlfriend doctor. Bye till next time.